you'd turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. And also, if we have uh, children who'd like to head back to children's worship, now is the time. Just like with Sunday school, they're way ahead of me. It's almost like they enjoy it and they're looking forward to it, right? That's a great thing. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, Daniel uh, chapter 10, the whole chapter, uh, again this week. And um, I think I'm uh, going to switch it up just a little bit. This will catch uh, Holly because, you know, she likes it when I change things on her. Uh, so we'll, we'll actually not read the whole thing right now. We'll read it as, as we go through. So, uh, and it's all ready for that. Uh, but let's pray. Our Father, you are a great and an awesome God, and we thank you so much for the promise that you've given us that if we wait upon you, you will renew our strength because, Lord, we need that. We're weary. And we're weary beyond just the weariness of, of uh, COVID, although that is, is troublesome enough. But it's just, it's hard living in exile. And we long for your presence where we'll see you face to face. We long for the day when there will be no more sin and no more darkness and no more pain. And so we're weary. And so we will wait on you. Give us strength. Father, we pray for the kids and children's worship. Would you mightily work in their hearts that they might trust in you even this day. And for us now, Lord, would you give us faith that we might receive your word and that we might be transformed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of Daniel. Uh, we've been uh, tooling along at, uh, I think, an incredible clip uh, as we've been uh, moving a chapter at a time. Uh, chapter 10, 11, and 12 are kind of the, they're really surround the, the final vision uh, of Daniel. He's had a few that uh, Daniel's had recently, and this is kind of the, the last one. And chapter 10 is kind of the introduction to that vision in which Daniel is so worn out, he doesn't even have enough power to receive the vision, let alone to explain it. And so, so he's strengthened in chapter 10. And chapter 11 is the actual vision. It goes from 11.1 until somewhere around chapter 12, verse 4. Um, and so that'll be next week. Uh, pray for me. That's 49 verses that uh, we'll be looking at. And then the, the end of chapter 12 is where we wrap up, where he gives some final instructions to Daniel and therefore some final instructions to us. And, and so that's all that's going to be taking place at the, the conclusion of this book. But as I mentioned already, Daniel just needs strength in chapter 10. He's, he's just worn out. There are three different times in which he's, he's told that he received strength, that he had to be, be strengthened by uh, the angels that were around him because he's worn out. It's, it's just so much. And as we're going to look a little bit at what was that was leading to that, we just recognize that difficulty. And we also can identify with it, right? Because we're tired. Because it's hard building God's kingdom while living in man's. We get weary doing that because we have what uh, one friend one time called the terrible tag team trio of opposition, and that is the world, the flesh, and the devil are all coming against us, battling against us to prevent us from actually building God's kingdom while we're living here. And it, and it makes it a very difficult kind of thing that we've got to uh, do, and we grow weary, and we need strength. Daniel 10 shows us how we can find strength for the work that is before us. Let's consider that together. 
Um, and, and the first way in which we're going to find strength is we've got to mourn. Start simple as that, to mourn. Let's look at verses 1 through 9. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. I did not eat any tasty food, nor drink, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like a sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, and my, with my face to the ground. Notice in, in chapter 2, we get the setting. He says, uh, in those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. Mourning for three weeks. Isn't that interesting that this, this chapter that is showing us how to find strength for the work begins with mourning. That's where we start, actually, if we're going to find strength, is we begin with mourning. Remember Jesus' words in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, where he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Meaning, if we're not mourning, there's no comfort that's there, right? Because we don't need it. So that if we're going to have that strength, it starts out with, with that sense of mourning. But what is mourning? We, we have books that tell us about grief, and that's something of it. You know, the, the steps of grief, we recognize we've got these five stages of grief, and everybody's got to go through that. I think the first place to put that is a book called Good Grief. Um, and so that's, that's one of the places, and it helps us to understand, okay, so there are different things that we face in grief. But what, what is it? I think that, that mourning, in a very real sense, is, is our recognition that things are not right. That's the starting point. Think about when you've mourned the loss of a loved one. What is your heart saying? What is that emotion that you're feeling in the midst of that, that grief, in the midst of that, that sadness, in the midst of your mourning? You're saying, this isn't right. It isn't right that this person isn't here anymore. Maybe we mourn for the loss of a job. And what are we saying when that happens? We're saying, it isn't right that I'm without a job. It isn't right as I look to the future and I don't know how it's going to come about. And that mourning begins to sink in. When I've lost a dream, I'm saying, it isn't right. But I'm saying something else as well. Not only is it not right, but I also can't fix it. Anybody here like me that's a fixer? Right? 
many of us husbands, our wives have told us, I just want to tell you what I'm feeling. I didn't ask you to fix it, right? And, and, but we don't listen because we keep trying to fix that. Well, that ain't right. We'll fix that too, right? And so we want to fix it. And when we come to that moment and we realize, I can't fix it. I can't bring my loved one back. I can't get my job back. I can't secure my future on my own. I'm just in that place knowing that things are not right and I can't fix it. And that's the mourning that I began to experience. And I think that that type of mourning is so important if we're going to find strength because the first thing that that means is I'm aligning myself with truth because things are not right and I can't fix it. That's just reality. To come to understand that I live in a sin-cursed world, that means it's a world that is not the way God designed it, not the way that He intended. It's not right. And I can't make it different. And that is where finding strength begins in, in recognizing that. You see it in various passages in Scripture. I want to look at three of them in particular. In Psalm 42, the psalmist cries out, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. The psalmist here is thinking of a, a deer that is being hunted and is being stalked around uh, through the wilderness. And it's longing as it's running from the, the predator who would seek to take its life and it's longing to refresh itself with water but cannot find it. And that same thirst, the psalmist says, that they are having as they are going through this sin-cursed world, as they're facing that things are not right in this world and they can do nothing about it. They are longing, they're thirsting for God who alone can satisfy. You remember the scene in John chapter 4 where Jesus um, meets the Samaritan woman and he meets her at a well and he asks her to, to give him water and she says she, she can't do that or asks what's, what's going on. In verse 10 he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus recognized that this woman that he's meeting at the well is a woman who's of bad repute. She'd had five husbands and is with a man now who was not her husband. She was an outcast from her society of her little town in, in Samaria, an outcast among the Samaritans who were outcasts by the Jews. And there she was, an outcast among outcasts. And she has this deep thirst and he shows her that he is the Christ and eventually she says, will you give me this water that I might not have to come here anymore? Recognizing that she had this thirst. She knew things were not right and she couldn't fix it. But the Christ could. And so she thirsted for him. We see it also in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1 that uh, magnificent call to salvation that Isaiah offers. He says, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That recognition that we all thirst, we all have a mourning inside us because we know things are not right and we can't fix it. What does our mourning look like? I think it looks like, first, acknowledging sin. We, we mourn as we acknowledge sin. Daniel recognizes that he's in exile. He's been in exile for probably over 70 years. 
I believe that uh, some of the, the uh, Jews had been allowed to go back at least for a time, but he couldn't go because he was too old. Wasn't able to make that long journey back, but, but he'd been in exile for the full 70 years and then some, and he knew why he was in exile. He knew that the reason for the exile was sin. That the people of God had, had sinned against God and remained in their sin, and God had brought discipline upon them. He had promised He would bring discipline to them, and He was faithful, and He brought that discipline to them and took them out of the land, and they were in a foreign land, and there they were trying to build God's kingdom while living in man's, and they were wrestling with this difficulty, and it was tiring, it was exhausting, and He mourned the fact that they were there because of their sin. He knew that we are here. He knew also that the vision is coming, that, that this oppression is going to last, that there's another four to five hundred years of these, these kings who are going to come in and continue to oppress us. And he's aware of this, and he mourns it because he knows the reason for it is sin and the discipline that is there, and it's hard upon his heart, and he's mourning the reality that the hard times they're facing were their own fault because they'd hardened their hearts against God. So too, we need to mourn. We need to mourn sin in the world, right? You see it, don't you? We see the immorality around us in the world that takes on so many different forms. Um, so, so, so much coarseness that acts as though immorality is the norm and, and the usual and is an okay thing. And it's just not. And yet we have it not only displayed before us, we have it celebrated before us. Whatever face that, that immorality may take on, it's there. We see hatred all around us in the world, don't we? It, we're, it's treated as though if you disagree with someone, you should hate them, right? If you disagree with someone, you should call them names. If you disagree with someone, you should seek to destroy them and get rid of them and want them to have, not even have a voice. We want freedom of voice only for the people who agree with us. And we want to silence everyone else. And it doesn't matter which side you're on. This is the norm. This is what's presented to us as what's normal. Do we mourn the reality of this? Do we mourn and, and to see the immorality and say that's awful, and to see the hatred and to see that that's just awful, and then to see the outright rejection of God all around us, the God who gives us this beautiful sunshine to warm us, the God who gives us our seasons to give us variety and to bring life from the ground, the God who provides the air for us to breathe, and yet He is rejected by those around us us and he's despised we don't call out to him and thank him for his good gifts do we mourn sin in the world do we mourn sin in the church one of the tasks that i have in in serving with presbytery and have for many years that i've been a pastor is sometimes having to serve on investigative committees whether at general assembly level or at presbytery level or sometimes in local churches and looking at the sin of of ministers of the gospel and seeing how they've set aside the truth of the gospel for whatever reason and have fallen to grievous sins and then frequently though they've fallen into those grievous sins they don't want to let go and they would rather lose all that they have done in working for the gospel than to turn from their sin and to release it and to acknowledge that what they've done is horrendous. And it just breaks the heart. And you know, you've tasted it, you've seen the celebrity pastors who've fallen, and you know what, how devastating that is. And it breaks our heart, especially when it's a celebrity pastor that we liked. And we're, we're saddened by that, but 
But they're not the only ones who sin, right? Church leaders? What about the church members that sin and won't let go of their sin either and remain in it and turn their back upon God? And it breaks our heart to see people who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ making such choices. And we're saddened by that reality. And it should take us to a place where we are mourning. We're mourning the sin in the world. We're mourning the sin in the church. And we're mourning the sin that's right here. The spotlight needs to begin to turn inside to me. And my sin, which disrupts my intimacy with God, for he says, if I harbor iniquity in my heart, he will not listen to my prayer. And so I'm praying, but he's not listening because I'm not really praying to him because I'm holding on to my sin in rebellion to him. And I know that it's there and I'm aware that it's there. And yet I keep sneaking back to be there in that place instead of enjoying that intimacy with my God, the only one who can love me the way that I need. That sin which blocks my fruitfulness in the kingdom. I'm not able to be used by him to impact lives. Because I'm choosing this sin in my life. And that sin which, worst of all, brings dishonor to the name of Jesus Christ that I commit. Am I mourning the sin in the world, the sin in the church, and the sin in me? You see, that's the place where strength begins. If I'm going to be strengthened, it starts out with that type of a morning. But you see, it's not a morning that only sees sin. It's a morning that sees Jesus. To look to Jesus. That when I see my sin, what it shows me is, when I see the sin in the world, I see the sin in the church, I see the sin in me, it tells me with, with undeniable clarity this is not right, right? And I can't fix it. I don't have the power to fix it. Any of it. Even mine. I find myself on my own powerless. But I look to Jesus who can solve it. I look to Him to be able to fix that. Let's look at verses uh, 5 through 9. He says, I lifted my eyes and looked. I'm sorry, I just want to look right now at 5 through 7. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet, like gleams of polished bronze, and the sound of his words, like the sound of a tumult. Does that remind you of anything you've ever read? Like Revelation chapter 1, where John says, And I saw in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Do you see? 
Daniel and John saw the same vision. They saw the same person. They both saw Jesus Christ. Daniel saw him before he'd become a man, before he'd become Jesus. He saw Christ. We call it a theophany, to where God reveals himself to him and reveals himself in the person of Jesus before Jesus has become a man. And he's able to look and he's able to see this vision of Jesus and, and, it, and it impacts him. But also think about the effect of, of those around. Compare this with the Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, when he first met Jesus. Now Saul, sorry, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Here's a moment in which, the, in the life of Saul, he meets the Lord Jesus on the road, and he casts him down. He sees a light, and he's blinded for a few days, and there he's facing this. But look, did you see the effect upon the people around him? They were terrified. Because of what happened. They hadn't seen Jesus, but they were terrified. They didn't understand the message, but they were terrified. Compare that with Daniel chapter 10, verse 7. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. At least Saul's buddies hung out there. Daniel's friends said, we're out of here, and off they go. Not slowly and, and carefully, but running in terror because they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory standing before them. Do you see that in the midst of mourning, God chooses to help Daniel by showing him Jesus? This will cure your mourning, Daniel. This will provide you the strength that you need to endure and to continue the work, to see Jesus. Who is Jesus? It's important for us to think about that. I remember getting a call from uh, a lady whose father had just passed away. And she was quite upset, and as she was telling me about her father dying, she became hysterical. Her breathing was erratic and she was uh, uh, just saying words over and over and over again. And finally I said, slow down, slow down, slow down. Tell me what you believe. And she took a deep breath. And she began to tell me about Jesus. She began to tell me about her father's faith, how he trusted in Jesus. She began to tell me about the fact that he'd been suffering for a number of years with pancreatic cancer and had been longing to go home, to be with his Savior. But God wouldn't take him. And he said, well, I guess God wants me here to pray for my grandchildren. So he prayed for his grandchildren. And she talked about Jesus meeting her father and wiping away the tears. And she was calm. Because she thought about what she believed about Jesus. It's powerful. What do we believe about Jesus? Jesus. 
We believe that He is sovereign. Amen? That means that whatever I'm facing in my life, no matter how hard it is, it is not outside of the control of my God. Can you imagine how awful it would be if God weren't in control? Oh my, where's hope? There is none. Because it may be controlled by some malevolent uh, dictator who's just seeking to destroy us, right? But it is controlled by the good God because that's the second truth. Not only is he sovereign, but he's good. And that means he is always working for that which is good. A good friend would uh, speak frequently of God's two intentions, his own glory and our good. Amen. And the third is he loves you. That's true and that's essential. Because if he's sovereign and good but doesn't give a wit about you, there's not a whole lot of hope in that either, is there? But the fact that he is committed to your highest good gives us hope. And I remember this about Jesus as I look to him. I remember who he is as I face him alone. Notice verse 7, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. In the same way, Saul had to face Jesus alone. Each of us must face Jesus alone. Each of us must meet with Him alone. Even as we're meeting with Him together, each of us is meeting with Him alone. We stand before Him and Him alone. Notice in verse 5, it describes Him. He says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, Dressed in linen. What he's trying to say here is he was dressed in the garment of a priest. It was the priest who was to wear linen. He was to wear linen undergarments. He was to wear linen overgarments. He was even to have a linen turban. It was in linen that the priest was to be standing. And so as God chooses to send his son Jesus to appear to Daniel, he sends him with the garb of a priest that Jesus might stand before Daniel in the midst of all of his grief and all of his mourning and all of his hardship and with no strength left in him, he wants Jesus to stand there as his priest so that as Daniel lifts his eyes and meets alone with Jesus, he meets with his priest. A prophet is one who represents God to the people. A priest is one who represents the people to God. And Jesus comes now as the priest. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, how does Jesus uh, execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest and is once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. That's the first way in which he functions as a priest. It's by offering himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. Divine justice means God can't just forgive willy-nilly. He can't just say, well, I'm just going to wink at sin, I'm just going to overlook it and not care about it, but then he would not be just. If a judge were simply to overlook the crimes of people just because he decides he likes some person, that judge would be thrown off the bench because they're not just. There's no justice in that. But God is just and every sin must receive a just recompense. And the wages of sin is death. And Jesus came and offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy that justice that he suffered, that eternal destruction on behalf of all of his people. And not just to satisfy divine justice, but also to reconcile us to God. It wasn't enough that he would just forgive us. He also chose to clothe us with a perfect and complete righteousness. His own righteousness. So that we might be welcomed into the family of God. Not welcomed as God's servants, 
Not welcomed as citizens of heaven, but welcomed as sons and daughters of the Almighty. And that's what Jesus has done as our priest. That's his first priestly activity. As Daniel stands, he recognizes here is the one who will satisfy divine justice and reconcile me to God. But not only that, but it also says, and in making continual intercession for us. Later we will see angels who are sent to Daniel. They were sent. Why were they sent? Because Jesus interceded with the Father that Daniel was in need and the Father sent them. That's how. Because Jesus was functioning as a priest and he prays for you as well. He's interceding on your behalf as your priest. Will you come to that Jesus now? I want to say please. Come to him, your priest, because you have sinned. And you mourn the sin in the world. You mourn the sin in the church. And you mourn the sin in you. And you come to Jesus. And you say, Jesus, will you forgive me? And he will. Come to him now. The second step, not only to mourn, to find strength, but the second is I've got to somehow access God's power. Let's read verses 10 through 21. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken these words to me, this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the later days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And behold, one resembling a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Then this one with human appearance, touched me again and strengthened me. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writings of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. There's a whole lot there. He says over and over again, there's no strength in him. He says it in verse 8, you see. Um, So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. Twice in verse 8, he says he had no strength. And then in verse 16, 
He says, And behold, one who is resembling a human being was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. Verse 17, For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. You think he's making a point? I think what he's trying to say is he had a little bit of strength left, right? Not at all. And the, the, the phrase, no strength, the, the word strength there means capacity to act. It's not just, well, I feel weak. No, 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 no. He says, not only do I, 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 I lack any active strength, I don't even have the capacity for strength. It's all gone. It, but God does something. Look at verse 18. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. Now I want you to pay close attention to verse 19 because the same word is used four different times. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage, literally, be strong, and be courageous and be strong. Now as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. And he said, and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Five times he's strengthened. Five times it talks of the fact that he had received the strength that he needed. Does that tell you something about how worn out he was? I'm thinking if I'm touched by an angel, I'm ready, right? Uh, bring on anything. Uh, you know, I'll pick up a mountain, right? It took him five touches. Five times the angel had to strengthen him in order for him to have enough just to talk. I'd say he was pretty whipped. There wasn't a whole lot that was there. But notice also how God strengthened him. Jesus didn't touch him directly, did he? He had an angel do it. And the word angel is, literally means a messenger. He had his messenger touch him. He had his messenger give him strength. He used a means to accomplish that some tool that he used in order to provide that strength. God works through the means of grace. We talk about means of grace. Bob talked about means of grace when he prayed this morning and, and talked about the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace are the Word of God, prayer, and the sacraments. The Word of God. The Word of God gives us grace. The Word of God is powerful in our lives. It strengthens us. It strengthens our faith. When we read it, when we hear it, when we hear it in song, when we have friends speak it, when we listen to it, when we read it ourselves, when it's preached, it has power. But it isn't an automatic power. It has to be joined to faith. Prayer is effective and it gives us power. It empowers us when we pray, when we turn to God and we look to Him and we pray. God has chosen in the midst of that to give us grace through our prayers, but He also chooses to give grace to the people that we're praying for as we believe. And the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, there is grace that is present that he gives to us as we receive in faith. It is not magic. It's not something that just if anybody prays ever, then they've received grace. Otherwise, people could pray to any false god and still receive grace, right? But it doesn't work that way. We eat the bread and we receive the benefits of the body of Christ when we believe. 
But if it worked just magically, no matter what, as long as I eat it, I'm going to receive the, the grace. I'm sorry, I'm going to start a business that's called uh, uh, Blessed Bread, right? And we're going to consecrate that bread, and we're going to send it out, and everybody who eats it is just going to get saved. That's a whole lot easier than evangelism, isn't it? But that's not the way that it works. It's not magic. It doesn't work that way. Because it has to be mixed with faith. Daniel believed, and the means of grace at that moment was the angel who touched him. And Daniel believed, and it made him strong. So if I'm going to access God's power, I need to be in contact with God. Because He's the source of all power. The angels didn't have the power and the strength to give to Him to strengthen Him in and of themselves. They received that power from God Himself. And as God put the power into the angels, then the angels were able to touch Him, and He was able to be strengthened and to find that strength. In the same way, sometimes we're strengthened, even by one another. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. The angel who was sent by God touched him. Touched him. There's something in that touch. We look in verse uh, 10, we saw a touch. Verse 16, and behold, one who resembled a human being was touching my lips. In verse 18, then this one with human appearance touched me again. Touch. Jesus could have just said, be strong, right? With Lazarus, he didn't touch Lazarus. He just said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth, right? But there's something in the touch. There's something that's there. Now, I think about energy, and, and I'm baffled by how eating like a piece of broccoli gives me energy. How is that even possible, right? And, and some of you will try to get into some of the chemistry, and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah but, but, but how does that work? How... how who came up with the idea that this weird-looking little green thing is actually going to give me energy as I chew it up with my mouth and swallow it? Right? Doesn't that seem kind of weird? But what if the God who decided that also decided that he would allow there to be some level of energy, of strength, that's actually passed in a touch? Have you experienced that in your life? Where you're just empty and someone puts their arm around you and you feel stronger. Where you don't want to move, you're frozen, and someone reaches out and takes your hand and you can move forward. And it's as though some strength had gone into you through them. Isn't it weird that we find it less magical that I can eat broccoli and get energy than I think that, it's, that, that God can reach out and touch me? with another person and I find energy in that? I accept the broccoli, but I'm not so sure about the touch. And yet here we have the angel touching. The angel didn't say any magical incantations, right? The angel just touched. And how often do we see that, even with Jesus? Do you remember the scene with the, the woman who had the issue of blood? It's always said at the same time as Jairus. Jairus' daughter had just died. Jesus is on his way to raise her from the dead. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old when she died. This woman had been suffering this bleeding for 12 years. I don't believe it's a coincidence 
The girl has died. Jesus is walking along. The crowd is around him. She sneaks up behind and just touches the hem of his garment. And she's healed. And Jesus says, hold it. Who touched me? And the disciples, as they typically do, say, seriously, Lord? (laughs) Everybody? (laughs) Everybody touched you. Everybody's right here. Everybody's on top of one another. How can you ask that? He says, nope. I felt power go out of me. You see, it indicates to some extent that that power went out of Jesus involuntarily, right? I know it's not, but it was, right? Because he's saying it went out of me. And she just touched and she, she touched. Did you catch that? And somehow, there was a power and energy that was transferred from Jesus to this woman. What if God has chosen that that's a way sometimes that he gives power to his people who need it through a touch? And what if you're the person sometimes to touch, to give the hug? to hold the hand, to be near. And what if we're the ones who need that? And you see, when you reach out a hand in Jesus' name, aren't they then receiving it from Jesus? I believe that's what's taking place in this moment. I need to be in contact with God. I need it direct, but sometimes it will come through the means that He gives me. Sometimes it will come through prayer. But it can't just be any old prayer. Say in my prayers, um, when, when I was growing up, we said our prayers every night. We had a list of about 25 people that we said, God bless, I could do the whole thing like that, right? You've heard me. I talk fast. And my whole goal was, how can I say this prayer as fast as I possibly can? Did God hear that? No, no. That's just perfunctory. But instead, to pray to the true and the living God so that I might touch him. Because that's where power is going to be found. I want to access his power. I must be in contact with him. And I also have to believe the message. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. I go here frequently because Habakkuk was actually written... Um, before the Babylonian captivity to predict the Babylonian captivity. And in chapter 2, verse 4, Habakkuk has this very important statement that's used in the New Testament on three different occasions. He says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. We live by believing the message. I want us to look at uh, two points of the message that Daniel has for us in Daniel chapter 10 in these these final few verses. And the first message is, I want you to believe that you are accepted. Look at verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem. Verse 19. He said, O man of high esteem. Now, it might feel nice if I were to greet you and say, you know, oh, you of high esteem. But then you look and say, yeah, but you just got feet of clay. No big deal. Imagine the angel of God calling you of high esteem. We looked at that word last week. 
because he used it in Daniel last week too. And it means to be precious, to be desirable. Do you hear those words that are spoken to you? God desires you. You are precious to Him. You are His treasure. You are accepted. Look at verse 12. Then He said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Do not be afraid. If I'm Daniel... I'm turning to the angel. I said, do not be afraid. Did you see him over by the river? Feet, bronze, fire, eyes. Did you see that? And you say to me, don't be afraid. How can I not be afraid? How is that even possible that I would not be afraid? How can we ever not be afraid when we think about the majesty and the glory and the absolute overwhelming power of our God? 1 John 4.18 tells us, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Do not be afraid, Daniel, because he loves you. You're accepted. You don't have to be afraid because he loves you. If that one with the bronze feet and the eyes of fire loves me, I'm good. Those who don't love me are in a heap of woe. But I'm all right. I don't have to be afraid because I'm accepted. He treasures you. He loves you. And look again at verse 12. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. Your words were heard. I'm sure you've experienced, I've experienced it on different occasions where I, I talk about where I feel like my prayers are getting stuck in a black tar ceiling that's just right over my head. You know what I mean? Those times in which prayer just isn't this rich, wonderful time, but it just feels like it's just getting stuck. Is it even reaching God? Is it ever making it outside of the room I'm in? And I feel that way frankly, because I'm, I'm thinking that way. And that's what leads to it. I've forgotten this promise, this statement that was given to Daniel, that for 21 days he's been praying, but he hadn't known whether or not his words were heard. There was silence from heaven as, as the angel was, was held back and wasn't able to come. And he keeps praying and he's praying. And he's got to feel this darkness. He's got to feel the tar right above him. He's got to feel as though his prayers are just dying there. But the angel is sent to tell him and the angel is sent to Daniel to tell you too, your words were heard. He has heard your prayers. He's aware. And he will act in the manner that will be to his glory and to your good. Believe that you're accepted and believe that he's involved. Look at verses 13 and 14. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the king, kings of Persia. Now, I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the later days the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. I don't know about you, but I, it's easy for me to think about God as being interested in the big stuff, right? 
And I can see angels, you know, battling over the kings of Persia. That makes sense, right? Um, I can understand that he's concerned about the activities of the government of the United States. I get that. But little me, I'm just 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 a, a pastor in York, Pennsylvania. Why why would he be involved? But to begin to see that the angel came to care for Daniel. Little old Daniel. This guy who was probably pushing 90, living outside of his homeland, maybe didn't have a whole lot to do. And God heard his prayer and sent an angel just to him because he's involved in your individual life. He's involved. It's not just something where he's only concerned about the great and the mighty and the others. Verse 20 and 21. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. That's amazing. I came to you as an individual. Oh, by the way, I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go fight against the, the angel that is over the entire nation of Persia. And I've got to go fight with him. So, uh, but, but I wanted to come see you. Everything good? Okay, see ya. I've got to go fight. Right? And Wow. And he's concerned about us. He says, so I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And even so, he has time for Daniel. And he has time for you. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, at the end of the Great Commission, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you? And lo, I am with you always. Do you believe that? Dare we believe that? It's hard to build God's kingdom while living in a foreign land, isn't it? In a land that's opposed to him. It's hard to build God's kingdom while we live in man's kingdom in which we fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're all opposing us. It's hard and the fact is, we, we need strength for that battle. We need strength for that work, don't we? Find that strength. First, by mourning. And second, by accessing God's power. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time and this meditation on your word. Thank you for the message that you gave us of your dealing with Daniel and its relevance to our lives. Our Father, I pray that you will help us to find your strength and that you will grant us the strength that we need that we might build your kingdom while living in man's. Father, help us to recognize the horrible effects of sin, but the great power of our Savior Jesus. Help us to access your power by being in contact with you and believing the message. And we pray now as we move toward celebrating communion. Father, through this means of grace, will you give us strength. In Jesus' name, amen.